Thursday, y'all, out here in New Haven. I mean, I look out the window. I'm surprised I could actually see anything. Climate change is a real thing. This is a real thing. We have a lot to talk about. I was invited to a panel, which was a great discussion um, regarding mental wellness, reproductive justice, and advocacy. I invite you to check out our channel, The Sound of Black and Brown, and even uh, check us out on Linktree, Black and Brown United in Action. You could see or listen to that panel. Um, and let us know what you think. What's your thoughts on stuff like that? CJ here. This is the sound of black and brown. Today, we're going to talk about something that might be sensitive to some. Some might not know it. And some might be too aware of it. And that is the intersection between slavery and mental wellness in black and brown communities. I also would like to openly acknowledge that this, I mean, not that you will do it secretly, but you know what I'm trying to say awkwardly. Uh, this episode is dedicated to the many unspoken voices, survivors of sexual and physical and mental abuse, actually, um, and also the many missing and murdered black and brown women. You see, in truth and in fact, uh, in particular, black and brown women have been conditioned to deny their mental wellness. So let's start off with black and brown people. And let's go back as far as slavery. You know, we were not there. Us who are here right now, we did not have to endure that, thankfully. But that does not mean that slavery did not end. If anything, slavery was reinvented. Whereas back then, you would know when you walk upon a field or any place where there was a mass amount of black or brown slaves, you know, you would know that was a plantation. In other words, you would know the slaves in comparison to the slave owners. Now it's a little more, um, a little more, it's subliminal. You would find that you're on the job, you're at Walmart, you're at the pharmacy, you're down the street, you're driving, you're walking, you're just being, you might be at the doctor's office and you will bump into a racist. The thing about that is, how do you handle that? Um, do you identify it? And even if you did, what do you do with that? And what happens when you don't? And why wouldn't you? These are all things that I feel necessary for us to talk about, because when you think about the fact of what's going on in Florida right now, right now, Death Santis, as he should be called, is promoting this hatred, okay? The fact that he secretly signed into law, uh, you know, what he is claiming to be gun control, which is not, it's really open carry. And it's a way of validating open carry. Um, you're saying that, well, DeSantis is claiming that, you know, the hope is that law-abiding citizens would abide by this law. But really, this law, this gun, alleged gun control law that he just passed that goes into effect July 1st, has already begun to do way more harm than good. If anything, since the topic was even mentioned, you know, and partially, I would assume this is partially why he signed this secretly, you know, um, there were attacks, surprise, surprise, I know you're in shock. There was attacks on black and brown people. And these are things that we need to understand. What does that even mean? What does that entail? How does that affect us? Why does that affect us? You know, it's important to recognize that a little bit of a mic issue here. So if you hear me coming in and out, that's why. Um, so just to rephrase, I was referencing, you know, the plantations and what's happening now and DeSantis and these um, suedo gun laws that he's promoting, which is really a way to validate the attack on black and brown people. And which, if you look into it, 
if you doubt what I'm saying, do your own research. I invite you to do that. You would see that since this was even mentioned, and this is also partially why various groups have been issuing travel warnings because the violence against the oppressed increased. You know, we're seeing people all too happy to give DeSantis credit. Oh, he's so wonderful. Oh, he's so fantastic. I like him better than Trump. But we're not seeing enough people angry about what's happening that's not being publicized as much, which is the ongoing assault on black and brown people. I mean, several people have died more recently. Um, A young black single mother who resides in Ocala, Florida, was gunned down by her neighbor. She's a single mother of four, I believe, a J.K.A.J. Owens. And the police response time was ridiculous. I mean, they basically, sorry, looked into the case at their leisure, as it would seem, and as it has been described. They did not seem too eager to arrest the only and prime suspect who happened to be a middle-aged or older white woman. Now, let's just say it out loud. If that were a black or brown person who shot and killed their neighbor, I don't think the police would have hesitated, thought about it, or questioned, you know, or decided, oh, well, this person is due to due process, right? But that is just another example of why what is happening in Florida is, is really something that has to have, um, you know, you have to pay attention to that. I should say, that's all I'll say that. You have to pay attention because he is inciting the hate. He is encouraging the animosity. And in truth and in fact, the media is not reporting a lot of the hate crimes that are happening. This is a place that has been home to several mass shootings. So now that you're allowing people to openly carry a weapon, I mean, come on here. We have this problem with these ghost guns. You know, the fact that people could make a ghost gun, which is the main part of a gun with a 3D printer, is alarming by itself. But when you add to that, that you have people in government who are okay with these things being out there, that's pretty damn scary for a black or brown person. Because, you know, in general, we are portrayed in the media as criminals. We're the ones who are shooting up each other. We're the ones where our neighbors are tired of the crime. We're the ones where, you know, you'll see people on TV saying, oh my God, why are we killing each other? And I'm not saying that is invalid. What I am saying, the media pick it, picks and chooses what it wants to show you. I mean, I don't know how else to say that, but to say that, I mean, mass media is politically controlled. So if there is a matter which is politically favorable, And in this sense, it is favorable for certain key players. I didn't say everybody, and I didn't say it'll be many, all right? Privilege guarantees control. Let me say that again. Privilege guarantees control. So obviously, Tawana and, you know, Alfredo, they're not the ones making these decisions. In other words, the common people, the average person, the regular person on the street, that is not whom I am referring to in terms of privilege guarantees control and alluded to why this is happening in Florida. It is evident that there are certain people in Florida who are quite happy with what is happening and they're willing to maintain it. And, you know, I mean, inciting violence to maintain crime and poverty and oppression is nothing new. Let's go back to slavery. Way back when, and we are still learning the story of our ancestors, just so you know, there's many untold stories. I'm pretty sure as time progresses, we're going to find things, we're going to discover things, and we should be open to that. We should always be willing to learn. That's my philosophy. Be willing to learn. You know, sometimes I have to unlearn and I have to relearn and sometimes I have to learn. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, I rather know than remain ignorant. I'll tell you that. But just imagine um, when you think back on slavery, one of the main ways that slave owners were able to maintain their slave was to, in fact, divide and conquer. Hence the reason why it said 
um, segregation, aka dividing and conquering, is as old as slavery. You probably didn't hear that before, which is correct because I just said it. Um, and also, something else to consider is where there is a lack of empathy, capitalism is very successful. So when the slaves were being made to fight each other, of course, that version of the narrative is what was told. So not only were we angry with each other, we were frustrated, we were overwhelmed. You know, that's part of the trapping. That's part of the mental impact of being um, enslaved, right? Um, same to follow for those who have been um or have survived, I should say, or have not, sexual exploitation and sexual violence. You know, those things, you know, victim shaming is something that happens and it should not be allowed, but that is also as old as slavery because when slave owners didn't get their way and sometimes just because they could, they would sexually violate women, okay? They would rape women, um, punish them as a way of punishing them, or, you know, even more to their fancy, they would have the male slaves rape other women to stop them from, you know, building relationships. What did I just say? So, for example, let's say a male and a female slave fell in love and the slave owner caught wind of that. Remember, they could not have us in harmony because us being in harmony, us agreeing with each other, us talking to each other, us loving and liking each other would mean that they would lose control. So instead what slave owners did, they would engage us negatively with each other. They would make us angry with each other. They would make us want to fight each other. Does any of this sound familiar? Does this sound familiar to you? Does it sound kind of, hmm, maybe that that's not that hmm, far-fetched, huh? Because it's not. Because that is what you know, white supremacy, capitalism, colonialism, many, many words I could go down the line. I'm sure you've heard them. It's all a means of control. So what the slave owners would do if they saw a male and a female, you know, um, getting a little too close, right, they would then have them violate each other sometimes. So one instance would be maybe, you know, the slave owner might rape the female slave themselves, right, to kind of teach her a lesson, or they might even rape the male slave. Now, add to that that they would deny you the opportunity to feel. So not only were you sexually violated, and sometimes it's not sexual, sometimes they would whip you or punish you, you know, have you hanging from something, have animals attack you, you know, I mean, different versions of attempting to control you so that you, you know, you stayed under their control. That's what slave owners would do. The same follows for sexual predators. They would do what they need to do to keep you under control. That is a fact, right? I'm a walking, talking example of that. You know, in my story, my being, my experience, I should say more exactly, you know, that's what happened to me. I would not know or be comfortable with associating the term predator, sexual violence, rape, exploitation, abuse. I mean, I could go down the line with what happened to me, right? Um, my innocence was lost to a predator. I was stalked. I was targeted. You know, he literally watched me. He would come to my window and watch me do all kind of creepy shit. I mean, just to maintain control of me after he had sexually violated me. And, you know, it took me years to heal from that, right? Now, I'm not glorifying my experience. I would never do that. But I'll also tell you something. That is not something that you heal from. That is my belief. You'll never fully heal. That pain is always going to be there. The question is how you're going to handle it. Now, out of that experience, I would be a child. I hadn't known, and by the time I realized that I was a child, it was unfortunately by the then standards too late for me to have an abortion. 
I would then be faced with the decision of caring and keeping or carrying and giving up the baby. And, you know, this was not an easy one because for all intents and purposes, you know, I mean, I didn't have the um, positive first-time experience. I didn't bear this child from a situation where I was in love with someone. I was groomed, I was stalked, and I was targeted, and I was exploited and abused. But I didn't understand those things because, you know, this is happening at a time and a place where, you know, I'm not exactly a social butterfly. I don't know who to turn to. There's different things happening in my family. And I just wanted to understand what was happening and why. So on my own, when I kind of had the strength, and I say kind of, because I obviously struggled, you know, um, I was able to part ways with my predator. But then I would find out that I was a child. And then I had to make the next decision, as previously mentioned, and I had to mentally deal with that. What do I do? So I delayed and delayed and postponed and postponed because I became anxious every single time. You know, I felt bad. I felt guilty. I felt like damaged. I felt a whole bit, many, many words. I didn't like myself. I'll tell you the truth. I didn't have a baby shower. Nobody celebrated anything. If anything, after being preyed upon, I was preyed upon, if you understand what I'm saying. They tried to pray it out of me. Pray the bad devil. Pray, pray it all out. You know, you're going to be okay because now we're going to pray the devil out of you. And interestingly, you know, um, back then, all I could do was just go with the flow. I'm a teenager. I don't know anything about life. And here I am in a catastrophe. So I have to rely on those around me to navigate me through. I have to tell you, I'm not mad at my family or anyone around me, friends. Um, it's not their fault. <clears throat> Excuse me. Sorry. It's kind of smoky still outside. Even though I'm inside, I can still feel it. <clears throat> Excuse me again. <clears throat> Pardon. But um, I didn't, I'm not mad at them. I'm not mad at the people around me. You know, this is the thing. Just like the slave owners, you know, um, those who come into our lives and abuse us, they do it with their intent. It's not your intent. Please know that. For anyone who has survived, please know that. You didn't ask for it. And I'm sorry if anybody victim shamed you. I could definitely speak to that as well. Um, because that's what I felt like. I felt like I did this to myself. And um, I will also say that I made different unsafe, unhealthy attempts to fix the situation, um, which I would never recommend to anybody else. There's a reason why we need to really support legal and safe abortions. There's a whole reason for that, right? And also why we need to support mental wellness in black and brown communities. Because here I was when I should be planning for, you know, going off to college, which I was excited about, you know, um, and all these different things in my future, I now had to face and make a real adult decision at a very young age. And I have to live with that. So when the time came and I looked down and I saw those big brown eyes looking up at me, just, just the most brightest, beautiful, oh my goodness, my chest is tingling, <laughs> remembering it. it. It was such a thing. When I first held the baby, my baby, I looked at him, and it was just love at first sight. And it didn't matter how he got there. I told him sorry. I kept apologizing to him. I, I you know, he wouldn't remember that, of course. He was only like a few minutes old. But I told him sorry, and I apologized for not being a good mother, Um, you know, and I apologize for this being the way he had to come. But I said, whatever I could do to make sure you are loved, I will do that. In the end, what would happen is, you know, um, I agreed because I, I couldn't picture after holding him, not having him around. So what would happen is now I have to deal with life after giving birth, 
which in the country I come from is not an easy task because it was bad enough I had to hide being pregnant. Now I have to hide having a child. And so the strategy was that I would not acknowledge him as my own. Um, instead, what I would do is acknowledge him as a sibling. And I did that for as long as I could tolerate because that was a mental warfare. It really was. Granted, I'm a young teenage parent and I know nothing. And even though I'm older, I still know nothing. Um, but to disassociate myself in that way was not something I understood and was prepared to do. It was very hard. There were many nights when I, I just sat there, just confused, anxious, depressed, not knowing what to do, not knowing what to say, um, and just kind of coming to terms with it. Now, this is not something that I've talked about openly at all, actually. Um, the platform I was on yesterday, the panel, was the first time I actually came out with this because part of this experience led to me not liking me and not wanting to be seen because I felt damaged, you know, I felt broken. Um, something near and dear to me, to my body, to my mental wellness was taken from me in the worst of ways. And I wasn't allowed to heal because now I had to play a role outside and then when I get home I have to be the role a different role so mentally while trying to struggle or I should say handle because I did finish school going to school and trying to be normal you know I didn't have the normal prom I didn't have the date nights I didn't have those things there were some real lonely days and then there were days when it was just me and the baby and we had a ball and those days were so great and it just made me wonder more and more, what would life be like if I could be in a place and a space where I could be me? That would lead to me living in America. But then a different type of mental warfare happens. Now I get here and I'm met with a different kind of heat. I'm finding people judging me and I'm trying to understand why I'll tell you something it took me about a year after permanently migrating here because after the baby was born I would come up you know visit stay for a little bit visit stay for a little bit so and I was not you know um, I was traveling on a passport only a visa you know so I had to navigate community in that way, a.k.a. as an undocumented person, because trust me, um, while having a visa in the process is difficult, it doesn't help you <laughs> in terms of getting certain things and access to certain opportunities. It's very stifling. And the process to move beyond that is not exactly easy. So for those who think that we literally get visas, come here and we have a beautiful life, Oh, absolutely not. It took me like a year after I permanently migrated to actually speak to people. Some people thought that um, I had some type of disability, right, that I was nonverbal. One person thought I was autistic. And really what it was is because every time I spoke, people would make fun of my accent. So here I am in this country, I'm already mentally dealing. I thought that I had come to be free, but now I'm enslaved in a whole different way. And then I would start reading, because reading and writing were always the two things that I kept near and dear. Those are the two things and my art when I could do it. Those are my safe places, right? That's where I could be me and I could express me and I could do so fearlessly. And so in those days when I would be by myself, I would start doing research on different people who I'd heard about or some I did not and hear the stories. And then I would get a different understanding of slavery because I had been raised and taught about slavery as it pertained to the West Indies, 
Now, on my father's side, there are indigenous people. There's the indigenous line over there, but also the African side. On my mother's side is the East Indian, more so, but it's a mixed bag of religious beliefs, meaning Hindus and Muslims. On my father's side, um, my grandmother was a descendant of Amerindians and Caribs, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and then, you know, there were also the African slave side to the family, of which, again, that's on my daddy's side. On my mother's side is where we had the East Indian slaves, and they differed in terms of their religious beliefs. Some were East Indian uh, Muslims, and some were East Indian Hindus, right? And a sprinkling of Mediterranean in there. This is the kind of family dynamic I had come from. In school, we were taught about slavery as it pertained to what happened to the indigenous people, Columbus killing them off, starting to bring slaves into the West Indies to train them, to get them ready, and what would happen, like the bucking and the rapes and, you know, the brutality that they faced, the various violations that happened to these poor people with the goal of training them to be obedient slaves. And also learn about our links to our Latin America, Central America, and South America brothers and sisters, because in terms of our indigenous people, many of them came from South and Central America. So there were actually members in my family who spoke Spanish and lived on the southern side of Trinidad. And so I knew about slavery and various aspects of that from that respect, right? But when I migrated here, I would learn more because I learned some of the slavery that happened here. But then I would learn more as I lived here, but then I would also peep it out. And I was confused because I'm coming from a country and let's keep in mind the time frame. There were no cell phones. Mass communication was not like this. We didn't have podcasts, YouTube, none of that. Um, email was just now a thing. Computers, you had to wear a jacket, you know. So this is a whole new world, literally. Like, I feel like the little mermaid, no pun intended. And I had to learn a whole new community and how to live in it as a single black mother. Because the one privilege I had, the little privilege I have was, now I don't have to deny myself. Now I could be a single black mother. But little did I know that that was not seen as a privilege, right? And as time progressed, I had to deal with life as a single black mother, having to manage work after school, before school, PTO meetings, parent-teacher meetings, you know, try to get some spirituality in there, keep up on homework, keep an eye on friends, all of this while trying to earn a livable income. I would go to work and have to deal with the passive-aggressive behaviors, the normalized racism, favoritism, misogyny. I would go into society and have to figure out what are my boundaries? And that took time. It took time to do that. It really took time because, you know, I come from a country that I was familiar with, the people I'm familiar with, the habits I knew. And here I am in this place and I have to figure out where I fit. Where do I belong? And that is not an easy task, right? So as the years went by, you know, it didn't get easier. Let me tell you. Um, but my acceptance of my mental wellness became easier because, you see, like you, many of us black and brown people, we are trained to deny our mental wellness. We are told, don't cry, you know, shut up. Our emotions are not acknowledged in positive ways. When we cry, 
be it male or female, when we feel negative connotations are attached to it, we're angry, we're frustrated, not, you know, wow, that was hard. I can't believe they survived that. That comes with time sometimes, maybe, but mostly with support. But as a community, black and brown people, we, you know, were raised, brought into this life and cultural sense of watching each other be destroyed, disenfranchised, stigmatized, and we just watch. Because that is okay. That's okay. Right? And what we don't see is while you're doing that, you're passing down the PTSD, the anxiety, the depression, the judgmental behavior, the emotional trauma, you know, all of it. You're passing it down, right? The toxicity, the white toxicity that stains us. The question is, what do you do when you get there, right? And my answer is, we have to realize, and I'm talking from one who has, again, I lived that life. I could tell you so many more things, so many more, you know. I, myself, have to tell myself when it's okay to talk about certain things. So don't think that I don't get it. I get it. I also know that, you know, I get critiqued. I am critiqued, I should say. Um, I've heard what people have said about me and how I talk and how I think. And that's because I don't speak like someone who yields. I speak like someone who feels because I do. And what I'm not going to do is to continue to deny my pain. I think we've all done that for too long. I think we've all stayed satisfied for too long. And I think we told ourselves we don't need help for too long. I think that community did a great job of stigmatizing mental health and mental, and that's why I say mental wellness, because they painted the picture of black and brown mental unwellness as violent, as crazy, very negative. So in other words, if a black or brown person is told or is informed, whatever word you want to use, hey, listen, you might want to talk to somebody about these things you're going through. We were already mentally conditioned to take that abrasively. Oh, that's a critique. And what's worse is the system itself, meaning opportunities and resources for mental wellness, does not look like us and does not appeal to us and our pain. In general, we see it on the movies. We see the young white person who's struggling and or in a TV show, and so they go to a psychiatrist and they get themselves better. We see all these images and ads and shows where white people are sharing their joy. They're having a cup of coffee that made them so happy. They could enjoy the moment. They could breathe. How do you tell the black or brown single mother living in the hood how to breathe when she has to pay her rent keep a job, keep her children fed, make sure she doesn't do or encourage anything to invite other parties in the police, DCF, DSS. She has to survive in her melanin in a world not made for her pain and one in which there are not resources or representation or support systems to help her. How do you how do you do that, right? And we see it all the time. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm all for white allies. Please don't get me wrong. I've said this many times. I actually know quite a few white allies who I care for, and they help me out a lot, you know. But at the same time, they are not the type, as far as I know or have known, to take that space as a space for them to be highlighted and uplifted and seen. Malcolm X warned us about the black man who depends on the white ally to support themselves. That is a big problem. That's a problem, you know, and we need to see these things and we need to acknowledge 
the, you know, um, indirect impact it has on our mental wellness. Okay, privilege does what it does to maintain control. When you work hard for something or you, you want to do something or you want to lead something and you see it taken away from you because this white person said, well, let me take it over. I can help you do it better. That's an attack on your ego. It definitely is. And we need to be open about those feelings. And especially after surviving COVID-19, I encourage my black and brown people, be open about how you feel. Because there's a lot for us to be mad about, right? We don't have housing security. We do not have food security. Incarceration is a profitable business, and we have to watch that. I could go on. The education system needs a lot of work. But most of all, we need to acknowledge our pain and not just talk about it, but deal with it. Okay? You cannot keep walking when you have a big cross on your back. I know they talk about it in the Bible, and we saw all those pictures with Jesus carrying a cross and who wiped his face and all of that stuff. That book was written by a bunch of white people to tell us this is how to believe. We could argue about that another time. But what I'm saying is you can't pour from an empty cup. Mental, <laughs> mental exhaustion is a real thing. Being in society right now and dealing with the bad drivers or the pushy co-worker or the nosy neighbor, it's starting to get dangerous. I mean, sleep in power, a GKAJ Owens. Look at what happened to her. She just went to address a concern, and now her family is mourning her. Our people are dying, and they're being violated. We still don't know where our girls are. We're still waiting for them to be brought back. We still have women missing and murdered in South and Central America. Okay? We still have no justice for Massa Amini. And while we do not talk about these things out loud enough because we're we're not very good at acknowledging each other's pain, much less speaking to it, it's awkward when you first start to speak to it because you're wondering. I mean, I'll admit it. You're sitting there like, Jesus, did I say that wrong? Shit, am I going to get judged? Because that's how we were conditioned. Here's my recommendation. Get comfortable with your mental wellness. Start off small. Have a conversation with yourself. One thing I'm going to recommend that might not be agreed upon. <coughs> Excuse me, sorry. This air, I tell you. One thing I'm going to recommend that I think, you know, is quite useful. I know it was for me, and I'm sharing this with you to encourage you, and I hope you're inspired to be comfortable to do it and dare to invest in yourself. It's not a bad idea to talk to a therapist. I'll tell you what I did. I made a list, right? I sat down because in my journey, of which I just shared a part of, and that's only a part, um, you know, I realized a lot of things that I wanted to unpack. Now, let me just share this big surprise with you. I don't know if you guessed it, but I'm no stranger to being isolated, excluded, you know, bullied, ostracized. I actually am used to it to the point that when it happens, I just walk away. But that does not mean I'm healed. And I knew that. And I, I wanted to be the best person I could be for my children. And I knew that to do that, to be a mother to them as best as I could possibly do it, and more so not to take out my pain on them, I had to do something. So I made this list, right? And I started off just writing random words. My keyword, I wrote therapy in the middle, and I drew a circle. And then I just wrote around it, what was I looking to do? And this is my list. On the next page, I put therapist, what do I want? I'm writing it out to myself because this is me helping me. And I wrote down my key ingredients that I want in a therapist, a black person who understands 
or ha and has knowledge of, I should say, social justice, you know, um, a good listener, right, and has had experience with an array of people, you know, because I deal with an array of things. You know, I have my little list. And so what I would do is, oh, yes, the flexible hours, because that was the other thing. Let me not forget that. Always thinking of flexible hours, right? What I would do is I wrote an email template. <laughs> so, all right, I had my ideas done for the therapist. And then I wrote an email template, which I would also use as a script if someone contacted me. So I then looked up which providers I could get access to based on my insurance. And from there, I reached out to everybody. And as anticipated, you know, and this was a part where I had to coach myself, right? Um, and I don't have anyone helping me do this. Let me tell you, um, I don't have a partner, you know, so I'm bumping all these things off myself. And at the time, my, my furry little partner, my pug, let me stop and talk about that. Having a pet was therapy in itself. He was my rock. He was my co-editor, co-producer, co-conspirator, you know, co-pilot, my baby. When I lost him, part of me fell apart. Part of me died because part of me literally died. I didn't have that anymore. Thankfully, I had sought out a therapist prior to that. So... That blow, and let me tell you something, I've taken some blows in life. I have taken some blows in life. I could talk to you about that for days, you know. Being a black immigrant single parent is one part. Being sexually violated at a young age is another part. Working in America is another part. Organizing as a black woman is another part. I could go on for days. So... I knew I needed to do something, and when I made this list, I sent it out, and I would interview them. I literally interviewed them. I tried to figure out, you know, who's this person, their strengths, their weaknesses, and I decided based on that which one fit my needs, and my goal was to help me get my mental wellness intact and work on it, Right? I'm a survivor of sexual abuse. I'm a survivor of many abuses, you know, and I needed somewhere to unpack. But I'm also an activist and a mother and an advocate and a leader and a analyst and a student. I'm all these other things too. So I need to be able to survive in me in a well way. And we could pray on it or we could deal with it. No, I didn't say that to tell you don't pray. Don't get that the wrong way. But the prayer could only go so far. When you pray, you're asking another being to help you heal. Key words, help you. You have to help you. And the way that you do that is to take that step. And let me tell you something. I know that you know, um, black and brown mental wellness is very stigmatized. We have our own, you know, interpretations, understanding, and comfort level with that. But when I tell you it's worth it, it's worth it. The only way we could break the stigma is if we challenge for change. If we don't like that there are not enough black and brown social workers, Challenge to change for that. But if you don't like how your life is going or you don't feel comfortable or there are days when you're overwhelmed in ways that you cannot articulate, challenge yourself for change and take that step. It's a step. It is a step. And heal at your pace. And let me tell you something else. As I mentioned yesterday on the panel, right, you know, just because you talk to a therapist doesn't mean you're going to be medicated. Um, and it doesn't mean they're going to put you in a room and leave you there or an institution. Before you deny yourself your mental wellness, educate yourself on what mental wellness looks like, including 
what the possibilities would be if you find a provider who suits you. Invest in you. Yes, we could take walks. Yes, we could do all these classes and projects and all these things, but that does not help you hug yourself and believe in yourself. That that doesn't cure that. That doesn't help you unpack. That doesn't help you understand yourself. What do I cry over this shit? Why did I just bust down crying over a song? Or why am I so frustrated when I can't find something? Or why did I just get so mad at myself for tripping on my own foot? I mean, these sound outlandish, but it's happened. Or why do I get so anxious when I'm trying to find out or deal with a life event? You know, a doctor event or... I mean, go to a doctor. I said a doctor even. Ha ha me. Or why do I treat myself this way? Why don't I forgive myself? Why can't I, you know, admit my little mistakes, say whoops, and say, okay, I'm going to do better? Why is that? We got to deal with that. And I'm telling you, the root cause of that is as old as slavery. Because as black and brown people, we were conditioned to deny ourselves mental wellness. And so even in our darkest, most anxious, most depressing hours, we still hold ourselves up to that standard. We still say, no, I'll just pray on it. No, I'll just do this instead. No, I don't want to get no mental health. That's not for me. That's not for me. I don't need that. And the truth is, what do you think will happen if we actually heal? What did I say when I started? Slave owners intentionally created separation and division among the slaves. Why? Because they knew if we were harmonious, we would talk and communicate and we would organize and uplift ourselves. They did not want that. So by the same token, when you deny yourself your mental wellness, right? When you deny yourself your opportunity to understand yourself and uplift yourself and be honest and open with yourself, you're just enslaving yourself some more. And I don't want that for you. And you shouldn't want that for yourself either. I really hope by sharing some of my story, I have inspired you all to think about this. I hope that people understand more now why our representation, participation, and belonging is so, so, so important. If we are really about progress, if we are true to seeing True harmony, unity, acceptance, belonging. Let me just tell you this before I say more. Lynching is not outlawed. Florida is like an open gun range. We need to heal. We can't just keep fighting. We fight better when we're healed. Any soldier would tell you that. I could tell you that. I fight better as I'm healing. And some of our wounds are that deep. I just openly told you, I don't expect myself to ever fully heal because what I experienced was not something that just goes away. There's a lot that I've had to unpack, accept, cry about, and forgive myself for. It took me time to feel okay about being me. It took time. You know, I didn't go on the trajectory that I was expected to, and I, I felt like a big-time disappointment, especially to my family, you know. And you have to forgive yourself with that, right? And in a time like now, right now, where people are, you know, there's some serious crosses we're facing, you know, we don't have a housing market where we could live, right? People are losing their housing, their jobs. The price of food is always going up. It's already very expensive to be poor in Connecticut. And, you know, just the cost of living in total, like nothing we've ever seen, right? And just like the slaves then, we're the new slaves, except our plantation is bigger. And it's less obvious. And they're still separating us. And they still want us to fight against each other. But we must see. 
we must realize, we must accept, it's okay not to be okay. It's okay not to do something. It's okay to set boundaries. It's okay to say, I can't do that right now. It's okay to admit you're overwhelmed. It's okay to say, I need a breather. We need to make those words okay in black and brown communities. All right? Because when we do things like that, we are more supportive of each other. And it's less about being seen and it's more about being. And it's more about breaking these chains that hold us back. Okay? I can't even begin to tell you how many events I've attended, causes I've supported, people I've supported. I didn't look for them to support me back. But it felt good supporting them. I told you in my story, I'm I'm actually pretty used to being down to me and depending on me. So for me to do that well, I have to take care of me. And part of that was me learning how to love her all over again. And I share that with you because if right now, you know, you're feeling overwhelmed, anxious, depressed, whatever you're feeling, that feeling in you that you can't shake, you don't know why. You don't know why. You feel like your joy just got sucked out of you. There's a lot to be angry, frustrated, mad, all kinds of things about, right? Especially when you don't have privilege, especially when guns have more rights, privileges, and respect than you. And nobody else knows that better than the black and brown women. Why? Because we carry society on our backs. And it has been made normal for us to do that to the point we don't even acknowledge our pain. She's not emotional. She's not being aggy. She's not being too much. When she speaks in her truth, if you're offended or you don't want to deal with her, you just told her who you were. We need to bring in that empathy that will help us make racism wrong again. As I've mentioned before, where there is no empathy, capitalism is very, very successful. Think about that. And I hope we continue this conversation because our time is now. And I hope that you're here to help us carry it through. Please like, follow, and share. Let us know what you think. That's all I have for now. Fist up, smile on. I hope you have a good one. This is CJ.